0: Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with myself, Dr Andy Matheson. Today we're going to be running through a few different articles, mostly things that have just caught my eye over the last wee while. The first one is going to be looking at three omega fatty acids. So it's in the BMJ and it was called Association of Omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids with incident chronic kidney disease pooled analysis of 19 cohorts so the aim of this was to really tease out whether or not it was seafood and seafood and plant omega-3s that really had the impact on chronic kidney disease now the The so what and why are we looking at this in a sports nutrition podcast would be we talk a lot about uh, omega-3 fatty acids and we've talked before about the ratio to omega-6 fatty acids and where they sit into kind of being their sort of health protective effects. And it's part of what what should we be recommending to our, our older athletes is probably where it mostly fits for myself. Now... This is kind of jumping right in, this paper, jumping right into the the plant-based or or non-plant-based diet um, argument. And it falls down very much on one side. It says um, seafood-derived omega-3 fatty acid levels were associated with lower risk of CKD, although this wasn't found for plant-derived where does it get that from and and is that something that's going to change our practice and are we going to be focusing more on on persuading people that they need seafood Uh, there's already uh, very mixed evidence on this and most people seem to fall one side or the other i think given this was published in the bmj I, i think the most I mean it it's a it's a large pool cohort study 25,000 people uh part of the, for the forest consortium um lots of very good things about this i think what i didn't like about this is that to really get an idea about the data they had found for the plant based omega 3s i had to kind of go dig in the supplementary data so if it's a kind of such a key conclusion what why am i having to go there to really make sense of, of what they've looked at. Um, and what I found was that obviously across all these different uh, cohorts and uh, that, that they've used, these 19 different studies, everyone's using different biomarkers. In, in the skill they've demonstrated is pooling these all together under one, one label. But when you look at the seafood, you can say, yes, I can see where they're coming from with with this. But when I looked at the plant-based plots, it was a little harder. And actually, what you could say is some of these studies didn't really seem, uh, there seemed a lot more difference between the studies. Now, that should come out in the analysis, and I'm not convinced it does. So whilst I think this gives me more and more confidence, and we all know we should be eating more seafoods, um, it doesn't really help me much with the the plant-based question. I'm not going to suddenly persuade people to change. Uh, and the other bit I, I would have liked to have seen was just a bit more data on the 19 studies as far as we know that there's, there's probably an importance about how the type of seafood, the freshness, how it's been stored. Uh, and again, not really much an attempt to, to dig into that. So... Yes, again, I'll I'll reassure people that omega-3 is great for your kidneys. Uh, If that's something someone's coming in worried about because they've read about the protein that they're taking might damage it and I can't persuade them that that's not real, then yeah, I can certainly say to them, okay, well, this may well help. There has been these uh, studies that have shown that if you're worried about your renal function, this might be a way to go. But uh, a little disappointing for a BMJ article the next one was again a funny study where i had to go a lot digging a lot harder for the uh data than i pr- probably would have liked so it was in the journal of physiology it was called fasting for 20 hours does not affect exercise induced increases in circulating bdnf in humans and what they were trying to figure out was whether or not it was trying to tease apart the influence of fasting and exercise, and fasting and exercise together on BDNF production, uh, BDNF, which uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, is sort of linked to this, it's linked to neuroplasticity, survival of neurons, possibly in animal studies, a neuroprotective element against against dementia. So, non-pharmacological approaches what is better or what is it better together to fasting or to exercise to raise this biomarker uh, which would hopefully down the line have an impact on uh, protecting your brain function. So again, falling into that, older athletes have concerns about is this exercise I'm doing good for my long-term outcome and my brain function and not happy with the answer that yes, anything you're doing is fantastic. You're designing your own Uh, training program. You're miles ahead of your peers in how active you are and the way you're thinking about it. Um, If they're really wanting to tease down then then let's talk about BDNF. Um, What they they concluded was that um, fasting and exercise both have neuroprotective effects um, and BDNF might be a, a common link But fasting, when they measured it, did not seem to impact BDNF in circulation at rest. Six minutes of high-intensity exercise compared to 90 minutes of light exercising was far more likely, four or five times more likely, to increase the plasma levels of BDNF. Now... The takeaway that people seem to have taken from that is that, okay, if I'm worried about uh, neuroprotective and I'm designing a training program from an older athlete, I should be thinking, let's stick in some high-intensity work Mm -hmm. on it. And there's lots of good reasons for doing that. Um, I'm not too sure this is it, though. Um, There was lots of confounding factors that I didn't really feel comfortable that they'd they teased out obviously the there's different fuels that you 're going to be using at different intensity exercise levels and uh, how can you how can you compensate for that? Um, how are you going to control for the different people's ability to train fasted what 's their past history like um, what diets are they uh, having what diets have they had before? Um, but I think for me, the, the the one that kind of made me pause most and think, ah, oh, I just I wish they'd done this a little bit differently, was when I looked at what they called 90 minutes of light exercising. And I think it was 25% VO2, which is really right down in that, that lower level. And if you're doing 25% VO2, it needs to be a lot longer than 90 minutes. So um, interesting, certainly nice to sort of get a bit more of a feel for, okay, how could we tease apart where fasting and exercise fit in? Um, but I'm not sure this this quite answered that for me. Um, moving on to the next one, I'm being very negative about all the studies this, this week. This this one is a really interesting one, and, and one that kind of actually made a real good effort to explain something which which I've always found a bit confusing. So... Um, as a GP talking to people about healthy things, I'll say, oh, I'll avoid avoid food with nitrates, careful with your bacon and your processed meats and your preserved meats. But then as someone advising athletes, I'll be like, oh yeah, smash in the beetroot a couple of hours just before you do your training session. And in my head, I've always put this down to that difference between um, what's good for you and what's good good for your performance are, are a lot of the time two different things and in this, the important part of sports nutrition is, is making sure we understand that and we know exactly what we're suggesting and not confusing something that's good for performance with something that might be good for your general health. So this was uh, published in PLOS Medicine, Dietary Exposure to nitri- Nitrites and Nitrates in Association with Type 2 Diabetes Risk Results from the Sante Population-Based Cohort Study. Um, and it tries to kind of use the sort of 20, to 2021, large Nutrisanti cohort study, which we've talked about before, um, seven, so decent old follow-up. They had a, almost a 1,000 cases of type 2 diabetes, and they were using that as, is that, is that going to be, is, is that a kind of indicator of kind of the, the damage that the nitrites might be, might be causing? And they tried to tease apart the link between Okay, are we talking about nitrites, nitrates? Are we talking about additive or food and water originated? So exactly those kind of slightly confusing questions that I think often when we look at things get get jumped over. Um, I think it, in my head I'm always thinking uh, you you take on board nitrates and then bacteria break it down to nitrites. Um, uh, and again, most of most of my thoughts on this come from the uh, sort of I, uh, we, we, as we said, we love love and, and the fact that they, that that switch and that uh, what we what we think is is going to be uh, effective the the nitrates on on your circulatory system is going to improve your time to exhaustion. So what what did they find? So essentially. They said additive nitrites led to type 2 diabetes, whereas leafy green nitrates, there was no evidence. Um, which is useful and interesting and... Um, starts to kind of dig into this very grey area of okay why are some countries banning something that sounds similar to something i'm recommending Um, so certainly recommend reading it for two reasons one interesting about the type 2 diabetes risk and um, the discussion about uh, nitrite and nitrates as food additives but also a really uh, good summary of, of where we should be in our head as far as what is the difference and and how how this all impacts our body. The next study was in uh, circulation and it was called exercise volume versus intensity and the progression of coronary atherosclerosis in middle aged and older athletes and findings from the mark II study. So this was a six-year follow-up, uh, 300 people, all sort of 45 years or older. And this uh, got quite sort of talked about a reasonable amount because it found that it was exercise intensity, very high-intensity exercise that seems to be linked with progression of coronary atherosclerosis. Uh, and for me, this is back to that idea that, again, is high-intensity Elite level exercise, good or bad for you, and it's bad for you in many ways. Stepping slightly down can be very good for you, but this the high, in, it's a constant state of, of inflammation your body sits in um, at an elite level. Uh, athlete uh, isn't isn't good for you. Um, this was another one where I was digging around, unfortunately, in supplementary data, really trying to get the the stuff I wanted. I could find very little on diet. Um, I couldn't find anything discussing about what's the underlying mechanisms. And we touched on before about some interesting work coming out about mitochondrial dysfunction, type 3 diabetes, how all these things link in. Um... I was a bit uh, surprised to see what their definition of very high intensity exercise or very vigorous exercise was. Uh, they used a sort of scoring system, so what sounded like very high intensity work actually, for someone who's forty-five, I think I would I would view that as fairly moderate. Um, and I think they could have split that up even further. I mean, um, three hours a week for a forty-five-year-old for me is not very vigorous um, exercise. They they seem to have they could have done with someone there are there are better scoring systems for breaking it breaking down the intensity of exercise um, they could have got anyone working on a um, reds research to come in and and break it down better for them um, so I, I I wasn't able after reading that to really take much away from this at all other than it just kind of a little bit of an echo chamber for my worry about long term elite sport. Well that's uh, that's it for this week. Uh hope you're doing well and um having a great day and managing to get some exercise. Thanks very much.